What am I going to say here? Don't know. <laughs> I wasn't actually reading the script there. <laughs> yeah. What are you missing? Oh, oh, mention his column, right? It's Friday, February 16th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peter, civil engineer and abandoned cock correspondent. And with me today, as always, is Gordon Derek, contributing editor at Dutch News and Tiny Cocks correspondent. Yeah. A lot of cocks. uh, There's a lot of cocks featuring in this episode of the podcast, so uh, I think we should give people a bit of an early warning there. I think the biggest cock here is Quincy Promes. Uh, I think we can... I think he's uh, been quite, uh, yeah, he, he, he set the standard to beat. Yeah, I think yeah. so too. Um, yeah, I think first we uh, need to mention um, Dries van Acht, the former prime minister. Yes. Um, because uh, last week, right after we uh, yeah, finished our recording, um, as always is the case, right, because this uh, usually happens, uh, so yep. there's some breaking news right after we finished. Um, it was announced that uh, Dries van Acht, the former uh, CDA prime minister, uh, had died at the age of 93 and in a very um, special way, very uh, very uh, touching way, because uh, he and his wife, I think she was also 93 or 92. She was certainly in her um, 90s, isn't she? Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, in, uh, from a similar age. They had decided to um, yeah, take things in their own hand and uh, they have selected the day and time they would uh, die uh, together. They had uh, chosen uh, uh, euthanasia um, and um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, fantastic that, that these these kind of things uh, can happen in our country, uh, right? I think it was uh, um, Ben Coates, uh, a friend of the show, who uh, who said that yeah, this is a thing that you can only uh, can can only see happening in the Netherlands. Yeah, in a small number um, of countries, the Netherlands, Belgium. I think that's about it, really. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, and this is a very rare, even in even in the Netherlands, is a rare thing, isn't it? What they call duo euthanasia, where a couple yeah. make the decision to die together, and of course they both have to meet the criteria for euthanasia, which are very strict, and you have to be suffering uh, with no prospect of relief for a long time. Uh, Dries van Acht, I think, had had a, a, a brain hemorrhage uh, several yep. years ago. His wife was also very sick, and so they'd been to their doctor and they decided uh, that they that they, want, that they wanted to die, they didn't want to go on living. This is a sincere wish. They met all the criteria, and it was agreed that they could pass away together. So Yeah, in a very a dignified very, way, and yeah. um, uh, especially they were married over 60 years. Um, so, yeah, and when, when you speak to people from that age who uh, yeah, are, are are widowed because their partner had died. They, uh, yeah, usually can't imagine a life without the other, and uh, yeah, they they really struggle <laughs> dealing with uh, yeah uh, continuing living alone. And uh, yeah, they clearly um, yeah uh, 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 dreaded that prospect of of uh, yeah having to uh, say goodbye to one another. And uh, yeah, it's uh, very very moving that uh, uh, they uh, they are chosen to die together in this way. And um, um, yeah, Dries van Acht. Um, he, he he didn't start as a CDA prime minister. I realized because the CDA was founded in 1980. Of course, and yeah. he was a KVP uh, prime minister when he started in 1978. And he was that's something I really can't imagine that the yeah. ruling governing part party. Um, yeah, 
merges with other parties to become another one. That's uh, I don't think something we can uh, we we would see happening. Uh, uh, in, That's in, quite a remarkable this, thing. Yes, yeah, so the Café Bay was a, was the Catholic People's Party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so yes, and so he was there at the found at the birth of the CDR. Um, and of course, he was a Christian Democrat politician. So actually, in his time, um, this is uh, the days before euthanasia. He, he was quite anti-abortion, wasn't he? I mean, on these uh, yeah. family values um, uh, issues, he was quite conservative at the time. But I think later in his life, he became he he changed his mind, changed his stance on a number of issues. Also on things like he was a very passionate supporter of uh, Palestine, the Palestinian yeah. people, which was something that wasn't really a factor during his time as prime minister. Yeah, and so. uh, he had said, uh, I think a, a decade ago, that he uh, stopped voting CDA and uh, he had switched to uh, to GroenLinks. And I think it was uh, three or four years ago that he uh, even uh, yeah, gave up his CDA membership. Um, there are some politicians walking around that uh, should do the same thing, right? Giving up yes. uh, their party membership. Um, <laughs> that uh, That's something for later. Um, uh, so he had switched parties, but that uh, didn't uh, prevent CDA um, f- uh, politicians uh, uh, from past and present to uh, to claim Thierry's van Acht as uh, one of their own, uh, which was also funny uh, to see, I think. Um, yeah, and uh, as you said, he was uh, at his time he was uh, a conservative MP, but he was in favor of euthanasia. By the way, that's oh, an right, interesting okay. thing because yeah. the euthanasia law was introduced during his prime ministership. Uh, he he had some uh, some issues with abortion. Yes, uh, that was uh, that was uh, uh, that that went too far in his uh, in his opinion back then. Um, but yeah, he was uh, he was never against uh, euthanasia, and right. uh, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, what is it? Forty years later, uh, you could see why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's one lines that yeah, the, the, the way that uh, the Dutch practice of euthanasia is often misunderstood, misconstrued, gets a, a bad yeah. press. But it is, you know, it's a very rigorous procedure, and it is um, very humane. And clearly, he was suffering; his quality of life was deteriorating quite uh, rapidly. He was ninety-three, and he had been fit for most of his life. And then, obviously, since having a brain hemorrhage, his his health and his quality of life deteriorated. So, the fact that you're able to arrange for people to you know, check out in without too, without pain and discomfort is, uh, I think, a very positive thing. Did you hear this anecdote uh, from from the seventies? Uh, he was justice minister, and he was also under police protection. That's not that's not new. That was that's something new, that no. happened yeah. forty five years ago as well. Yeah. And he lived in Nijmegen, very near to the German border. And at some times he was yeah got sick and tired of his police protection, and then he would jump on his uh, 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 speed bike, and he would just uh, cycle into. Germany <laughs> basically <laughs> fled, and uh, his police protection were carrying uh, weapons, of course, and it was absolutely forbidden at the time to, uh, yes, yeah, uh, bring weapons into Germany, yeah, so they the couldn't board, follow the him. The borders were closed at the time, right? The borders were closed at the yeah, time, yeah, 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 except when you were on your bike, yes. um, and even more bikes were brought into Germany uh, yes, in the indeed, 70s, yes, apparently. Yes, yes. Um, so uh, yeah, that was how uh, how uh, Dries van Acht would deal with his uh, with his police protection. I thought it was a very funny anecdote. Um, I think we should move to our uh, to our job titles here. Yes, um, coming back to the, to the land of the living and uh, yes, yeah. some, uh, yes, some some cock milestones. Um, <laughs> uh, do, do, uh, do, do you want to go first? Uh, what's yeah, the abandoned I'm going first. Yeah. 
Yes, there are some, uh, what is it, some animal welfare organizations, six in total in Rotterdam, that uh, are calling on uh, on people to, uh, yeah, to tackle the problem of abandoned poultry. Mm. Um, what was, uh, yeah, what has uh, what has sparked this uh, this this call? That is that in a hotel in Rotterdam last week, uh, someone left his cockerel in the hotel room and left. Okay. <laughs> so uh, yes, uh, the, the 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 cleaning service went in and they saw this, uh, yeah, this bird sitting in the in the hotel room. Yeah. And nobody knows uh, who this from, so uh, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's a bit of a mystery. Um, this went absolutely viral. This photo of this, yeah, cock in in a in a, in a <laughs> what is it a uh, in cock a hotel, in hotel room. room? Yeah, yeah. Um, and do you know where um, it was brought to which refuge uh, animal we- refuge uh, center? Uh, it's called Zwerfkip and so. Of course, it is. Yeah, uh, Zwerf yeah. is a yeah. yeah. yeah so what w- w- wandering chicken, isn't it? Yeah, wandering yeah. chicken. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so apparently there are a lot of yeah chicken walking around, and uh, there are some some sort of specialized uh, animal um, refuge center here. So um, yeah, that was uh, that was uh, pretty funny. Could have been the Ophef, I think. Um, Potentially, yeah. By the way, yeah. Potentially, yes. Yeah. Uh, and your job title, uh, the, the very sad day for... Yes, yeah, this um, is another departure of sorts. Um, yeah. This is uh, one of the great oh, names. Oh, by the way, by the way, yes. uh, the, 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 the person from the hotel room, they called the animal ambulance, of course, because of course that's it what is. you do yeah. when there is an animal in, in, in need. And the animal ambulance said, yeah, we're not dealing with poultry. That's not, that's no? not, that's not our... Yeah, I have to say that that sounds like a pretty poultry response. But, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. But an animal in need—that's oh, not yes. our business. I mean, exactly. they shouldn't be dis- they shouldn't be discriminating like that. I mean, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, you know. I think Peter Omsicht would have something to say, to say about that. <laughs> Undermining the constitutional rights of uh, of lost orphaned chickens <laughs> or cockerels. Yeah. Right. Uh, going back to your job title. But going back to uh, yes, so, so, this is one of the great names in Dutch politics. Uh, to, to, to those who <laughs> follow the follow the Senate and the Socialist Party will know all about names. this character called uh, Teeny Cox. Um, uh, Martinez, I think, is his, is his given birth name. Uh, yes, Martinez. but if you are English-speaking and you see his name written exactly. down, what do you think it actually? Yes, it, it, it looks like Tiny Cox. Yeah. Yes. So this is the, uh, every time he appears on television and there's a caption with his name up. Uh, you, you, you imagine people uh, in the UK, especially if there's any kind of occasionally he's been involved in you know, European uh, summits yeah. and things, and he comes up on screen and it's, uh, his name flashes up, Tiny Cox, and everyone sits there. Sits there giggling away, suppressing giggles. It's kind of like that scene in the life of Brian. So, <laughs> yeah, well, that's a mystery. Why, with such a name, why do you keep pursuing international <laughs> jobs, or at least use your full name, right? That's yeah. uh, that, that way you can prevent, uh, yeah, people you not taking people ridiculing your name. Yeah, yes. yeah, but but, but uh, Teeny Cox has uh, now um, retired as a senator for the Socialist Party. So um, yeah. he's been quite a long-standing uh, senator for the, <laughs> for the SP as well, uh, so to, so to speak. Uh, I have to say, I, was, I, I had a kind of frisson of excitement uh, because uh, the, the, he, he stepped down, and then the next day, um, Ronald Plustek said he was resigning as um, informateur, and they needed a new person uh-huh. to take up the job. And I thought, please, yeah. please make this happen. Please have. <laughs> Teeny Cox as the person chairing the talks between Clear Builders and the other three right-wing parties. That would just make my day. Yes. But it wasn't yes, to be, sadly. No, as we will hear later in the podcast. Yeah. All right. And actually, I prepared a uh, op of the week, but I, uh, I really dreaded uh, discussing this because I, I hated this op uh, I have to admit. Okay. Um, but, but, but fortunately for us, as we are recording, a new op 
emerged and Gordon you have uh, read everything about it so you are much more informed than me right now but it is fantastic please tell us what it is, is a the great OPF great of the and uh, I think yeah it, it is much better than the one we had which was something to do with the department store chain Hamer now this is uh, Amsterdam City Council have come riding to the rescue here because um, <laughs> uh, there is a debate going on um, on Thursday evening uh, about the location for the very notorious uh, erotic center which is this is this huge uh, purpose-built building that's supposed to replace the red light district and they're having a debate about where it should be located either in the north or the south of the city but the debate when it started are, are, dis- are they also debating whether or not they should sell stropwafels at that uh, center or not oh, or? i think they're definitely going to sell stropwafels yeah. i mean that's the, that, that, that's a given i mean otherwise what, what would be the point what's of the going? point <laughs> yeah <clears throat> but <clears throat> the debate began so in, in the, at the city council um, and as it began, um, they started to hear some rather strange noises in the somewhere from a, from a far corner of the room, and no one could look <laughs> identify quite where it was coming from. And there was some debate about the, what the noises were. The the mayor, Fumke Halsma, said it sounded like somebody snoring, but it quickly emerged as, as this went on that uh, actually it was sex noises. So some, from somewhere in the room, there was the noise of uh, yeah, people um, people making out, and uh, they had to look around. And eventually, they found there was a speaker taped to the window. <laughs> so they found the speaker. Um, I think they managed to neutralize it or switch it off. Um, and then they went back and carried on the debate. And after a couple of minutes, uh, the chairman said that uh, they had to clear the room because the police wanted to carry out further inquiries about this sex speaker. And, and they actually sent someone in from the, and I'm not making this up, uh, from the explosive uh, services unit from the <laughs> from the bomb squad. So they obviously, did the, the, to make sure, that, and then they cordoned off the area. They, they put tape up around it. They went in, they sent a bomb squad expert into the uh, to, to examine the device to make sure that it was completely safe and it wasn't and fact, someone wearing a huge uh, uh, um, uh, uh, plastic car it's basically a human condom that's walking in right I think I think they're worried that it was um, some kind of a, a Tom Jones terrorist organization right because <laughs> obviously they're worried that somebody had left a sex bomb in the area in the room so they examined the device they decided it was safe um, they removed it. They they, they they neutralized it so that it was no longer making these unpalatable noises, and they um, adjourned the debate until half past seven. But yeah, that uh, that was uh, the start of the the the, the, the extraordinary beginning uh, opening to the um uh, to, to the, uh, the debate in Amsterdam City Council about the location of the erotic center. So it really did start with a bang. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> Yes, uh, but a bit anticlimactic uh, ending here. Um, <laughs> this might be even better than the revelation uh, Ronald Plostek did at the end of uh, Wednesday debate. I think. That was also very good. Uh, uh, yeah, so could, al- could almost qualify as not PEF. But, uh, yeah. This week, informateur Ronald Plostek presented his report with conclusions and recommendations on how the coalition talks should go forward. Mark Rutte might be moving to Brussels very soon. A judge ruled that the Netherlands can no longer supply Israel with parts for F-35 fighter jets. It remains financially interesting to put solar panels on your roof, thanks to a potentially drunk Eerste Kamer. The Netherlands is no longer in recession. We finally have cricket news again. I'm very excited for this. Football player Quincy Promes is effectively exiled to Siberia, and you might want to leave your buckfeets in your stalling for a while. 
On Monday, former informateur Ronald Plasterk presented his final report on the coalition talks between PVV, VVD, NSA and BBB. Uh, remember, last week, NSA leader Pieter Omtzigt surprised everyone by stepping out of the talks after seven weeks of negotiations. He claimed that Plasterk had somehow withheld the true state of the government's finances from him. Plasterk, however, still feels that the parties uh, still have enough in common to form a new coalition and uh, to put together a new government. He advised to appoint a new informateur with wide managerial and political experience to see how Pieter Omtzigt could be brought back on board. Yeah, and uh, remember Plasterk, uh, I think it was a week or so, or two weeks after the elections on November 22nd, he had a column in the Telegraph and he wrote that, yeah, it shouldn't uh, take too long. Uh, it was a very straightforward thing to arrange a, uh, a coalition between these four parties. Yeah, and, it was a clear uh, yeah, result. He, um, it was going to yeah. be a walk in the park. It was very obvious what the coalition should be and it should all be wrapped up uh, in time for Christmas. Yeah, and um, yeah. he was brought in. Uh, Potentially, I think, because of this column. Um, uh, he was watching uh, yeah. for, his, uh, for his insight and expertise, which uh, now yeah. <laughs> seem to have uh, been distinctly lacking. Yes, and uh, yeah, he uh, he had to uh, yeah make a little a bit of a U-turn, I think, in the debate <laughs> on Wednesday when he was asked, "Yeah, do you still think it was uh, it was a walk in the park?" And he said, "No, not uh, not uh, not particularly. It was much harder than I initially thought it was going to be." Yeah. Um, Omtzigt told journalists on Monday after he had returned to The Hague from hiding for the better part of a week in Enschede that he thinks a minority cabinet made up of PVV, VVD and BBB would be a good option to look into. And he also said that NSA will uh, yeah, sit out the next stage of the formation. Yeah, and what he said was he said uh, that the three other parties seem to have gone on so well without him that uh, they should just carry on. Was it? Yeah. It's not exactly a sort of re-endorsement <laughs> of his own um, contribution to the negotiations. They were very unified in, in <laughs> trash-talking uh, about yeah. Omtzigt in the past week, right? So, uh, yeah, that's, well, they, they were doing surely... it in sync. You know, literally, like, Vils would put up a tweet, and within five minutes, the other two would also put up a tweet, yeah. usually using a very similar language as well. There's nothing more bonding than finding someone you can all hate together. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So, uh, um, Omtzigt uh, does not rule out, however, that he might support the minority cabinet without actually taking part. So that's what we call a gedoogsteun, uh, right? Mm. Um, on a few conditions, though, uh, that the three parties would make sufficient steps towards better governments and improving bestaanszekerheid, the security of living, which was the buzzword of the elections. Uh, and this all should be underpinned by a good financial framework. Mm. And the other three parties spent the weekend, uh, yeah, basically telling every journalist they could find uh, how disappointed they were in Omtzigt for stepping out of the talks. Uh, but uh, yeah, in between uh, passive-aggressive tweeting, uh, they did keep the door open for Omtzigt. They really want him to come back on board uh, and they hope that uh, yeah, he will uh, soon uh, rejoin them at the uh, negotiation uh, table. There's still a chair and a bouquet and a glass <laughs> of water waiting for him. There was a lot of passive aggression going on in the, the last days of these talks, wasn't there? I mean, I think that the fact they actually still put out a chair and a bouquet of flowers <laughs> and a glass of water, I think, in Peter Omzik's seat, as if to say, you know, look, Peter, this this could all be so much easier if you just, uh, you know, if, if you just got off your high horse and came back and joined us. I think if you will look up the word passive aggressiveness in the Dikke van Dalen, you will find a picture, this picture of this empty chair in this uh, yeah, very sad and uh, 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 depressing room in yeah. the B67 building where they are negotiating. Do you know how they call it? The building. 
Het, no, the, the area where they are where they are negotiating. They call it the formatiegebied, the formation area. Right. And it sounds like something that you would go to a doctor and say, yeah, I, my formation area is itching very much. <laughs> what I'm going to do? And, well, it, yeah. that has been uh, causing them a lot of grief uh, lately, indeed. Yeah. yeah. I thought it sounded more like sort of a, like something uh, you'd see on a set of plans for an abattoir or something. You know, it is the formatiegebied. So this is where we stun the cattle just before they get to. <laughs> <laughs> go into the go into the meat blender. <laughs> that, this would surely make Caroline van der Plas very enthusiastic when they when you. That's why she wants to to stay there so much. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. That that must be it. Yeah. So uh, what else was in the Ronald Plastics report? Um, yeah, disappointingly little information. Uh, there was a timeline and the things they had talked about uh, with the four parties, but he didn't. Plastic didn't disclose anything the party leaders had agreed on or made concessions, apart from an interesting paragraph on the rule of law and the constitution. Yeah, that was uh, about the half the report, wasn't it? The, yeah. the bit about the rule of law. It was seven yeah. pages long and three and a half pages with a declaration about the rule of law. Yeah, and that was that was item number one of the uh, plus tax assignment, right? That he mm. got from uh, from the Tweede Kamer. Find yeah. concession on this thing, and everyone should commit to uh, to upholding the constitution. And that's what they had agreed on, even though Peter Omzicht had denied that they had reached any sort of agreement. By the way, but uh, yeah, Peter Omzicht is a bit of a uh, curious uh, case uh, the the past weeks. Yeah. Um, so the parties had agreed to uphold the constitution in its current form, including the freedom of religions such as uh, Christianity. And the Islam, and this is very interesting because Geert Wilders has, for the past 20 years, insisted that Islam is not a religion but a totalitarian ideology, and that uh, sort of justified uh, him uh, for the way of yeah he 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 always addresses Islam and uh, and uh, the 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 issues he think um, Islam has. So that was interesting to see uh, Geert Wilders finally acknowledging that Islam is a religion and not a what he always calls a a um, ideology yeah and it is said explicitly in the declaration that uh, people that uh, muslims and christians should both be free to practice their religion yeah. right and they said and then of course there was another you know a quid pro pro was saying that on the other hand it's absolutely fine to criticize both religions which obviously yeah yeah Wilders is not going to be interested in having the right to criticize christianity but he's he, he wants to make sure that he's still um not going to be restrained from uh, saying awful things about muslims Still a big concession, I think, on Geert Wilders' part, and not something that he can easily yeah. take back because, True. yeah, it's now in black and white, and he, he was also offered a chance to put it out of the report if he wanted, but he he he, he kept it in. So, uh, very very interesting here. Um, also, uh, it was agreed that any pending constitutional bills should be withdrawn from the parliamentary role. And this was all agreed on January 9th. And remember that two days later, Geert Wilders all of a sudden withdrew three pieces of legislation that had been on the roll for, what was it, 15 years or so. Yeah. Um, so that explains why all of a sudden that happened. Um, there were... Uh, also, no agreements on the big issues of the time. Plastek wrote uh, immigration, bestaanszekerheid, government finances, climate, nitrogen. Uh, there were still a lot of uh, huge differences between these four parties. Uh, and um, yeah, that is why he couldn't um, conclude that there was enough common ground for these uh, yeah, four and uh, the other three parties as well. Not enough common grounds to move forward. So that was why he couldn't advise. Uh, these three parties to continue as they were go were were, were doing. 
Yeah. Um, so we had this declaration that was uh, signed on j- uh, January the 9th. And uh, by the way, Omzicht also had his little kind of Inglechfeller saying that uh, even though the parties had agreed to uphold the constitution, he still categorically ruled out having a, ma- uh, a majority coalition of the f- of all four. Um, but hmm. that happened on January the 9th. Plastec sent in his report on February the 12th. Do we know what's happened in the sort of four and a half weeks in between then? I mean, is there any evidence that they discussed anything apart from obviously the Spidings vet, which blew up in the meantime? Yeah, we don't know. Uh, 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 Omsicht claims that he at that time requested uh, from all the ministries, you know, what their financial states were, what they were uh, expecting in the coming years, so that they could have a clear image on, yeah, what what uh, financial difficulties the Netherlands uh, and the government uh, would face. And he basically said that he has been waiting for that for the entire month. And uh, after it finally arrived at Plastec, Plastec with. Uh, I hold it from Omsicht, uh, 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 Plastek, kept it in a drawer drawer of his desk or something. Well, and did he keep it in a deep freezer, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> it's yes. a very big deep freezer they've got. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it was already pretty stuffed, right? So I don't know if there was still any space there. Um, so uh, I, I don't know what the motive would be for Plastek to w- withhold it from Omsicht. I mean, at some point uh, it was going. It, he needed to share it with him. So yeah. Yeah, why wait two, two weeks? Plastek, on the other hand, said that uh, the request was made on January 23rd. Many of the documents were, it took quite some time for the ministries to prepare them, but they were sent around February 1st. They also included some yeah, um, uh, sensitive information that had to be redacted, and that also added a few more days. And Plastek said, yeah, I just waited until everything was ready so I could just issue it in its totality and not, uh, yeah, but, piecewise distributed among uh, uh, the negotiators. That is that is Plastec's uh, uh, side of the story. Yeah. 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 Um, also, Plastec said that the reports uh, didn't contain anything that could have startled Omzicht because, yeah, the bulk of it was uh, already known and already shared with the Tweede Kamer. Um, and he also stressed that Omzicht had only asked for a list of potential financial setbacks and not something that, uh, yeah. So basically, I ask for all, all the worst case scenarios possible. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's uh, also something that's very unlikely that all the worst case scenarios happen at once. So, yeah, that's uh, also yeah, a bit of a flaw in uh, Omzicht's uh, uh, explanation on why he decided to uh, to uh, pull out of the negotiation. Uh, yeah, so something doesn't add up here, does it? Um, yeah. Omzicht said, try. I think he was giving the impression that, that there was something really alarming in these reports and that he was saying that the that they painted a completely different financial picture of um, and that they couldn't uh, keep all the promises that they made to the voters and that they weren't being honest um, by saying that they could uh, they could avoid uh, large-scale budget cuts but of course the financial experts who came in at the uh, at the end of January had already said that they needed to find 17 billion I think of budget yeah. savings so this wasn't new information and yeah and, and then Domsi kind of muddied the waters subsequently by saying uh, I think in, in debate which we're, which, uh, which we'll discuss next uh, that uh, his main breaking point was really still the constitution yeah yeah even though they had already agreed on the, on that particular topic yeah so uh, yeah. as you say something doesn't add up in uh, Omsi's story yeah. So, yeah, moving on to the debate. Uh, this was on Wednesday. And, uh, yeah, did that shed any more light on or give any more context to Plastec's report? 
Well, there was one piece of very important context, I would say, and that is that Plastek disclosed that on the... Uh, <laughs> I, I, unfortunately, I wasn't able to watch the entire debate. I think you watched uh, 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 portions of it, maybe yeah. its entirety, I don't know. Um, but there was one bit I, I, I catched when I when I was on the train and I put opened the uh, Tweede Kamer app, which is, by the way, fantastic because it also has an audio-only function. So, yeah, if you are running or whatever or doing something else you can still listen to the debate i wouldn't listen to a parliamentary debate while i was running really i, 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 I would just want to run straight into a canal <laughs> i do that sometimes but that's a different story um what i was going to say yeah i catched the most important bit of the uh, debate and that is that when Plastec disclosed that on the evening that uh, omzicht announced that he was uh, pulling out of the coalition uh, talks um omzicht had asked Plastec, if he could use the chauffeured car that Plastec was provided with by the government for, you know, as long as he was informateur. Plastec didn't, he didn't know what Omzicht was going to do, but he said, yes, I'm still, I'm working on my report in my office here, so I'm not going to need my dienstauto, my chauffeured <laughs> car, in quite some time, so you can use it, whatever you need to do. And he used it to go to that hotel n- near Den Haag, Hollandspoor station, where he had secretly met with a bunch of journalists, which he who he informed that he was going to quit before (laughs) he actually uh, informed the other coalition partners. And um, while he was meeting with them, uh, news broke because it, yeah, obviously these things leak. Um, um, uh, And uh, the the, the other three partners were um, informed by an NOS push message rather yeah. than uh, <laughs> by Omzicht himself. Yeah. So but also, of course, when, when he got to the hotel, the journalist already had the letter that he sent to his yeah. party colleagues, right? So yeah. Yeah. In, yeah, exactly. that, that was a really fast bit of work. In between uh, Omzicht uh, sending the letter and then getting in his uh, chauffeured car and driving off to the hotel and, and go to the hotel in Holland Spoor, which is only like sort of five minutes away, yeah. you know, did, did, did someone have managed to actually send the, the, the contents of that letter <laughs> to the journalists who were waiting for Peter Omzicht in the hotel? Yeah. And, so that, and and, and yeah. Plastek was of course very unhappy with how things went, uh, and um, yeah, that uh, Omzicht had used his car <laughs> for this. <laughs> I mean, you could have cycled it, really. I mean, yeah, you off to or Holland take a tram. I mean, why on earth do you need to go to do that by car? That's not very. I mean, given that Omzicht, you know, no, no, no one wants to um, uh, <clears throat> honor um, uh, environmental targets and uh, 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 things like nitrogen reduction. I mean, very, very making very short journeys in a chauffeur-driven vehicle is not exactly environmentally efficient, no. is it? Yeah. <laughs> Peter Omzicht is yeah. the Taylor Swift of uh, <laughs> of the Binnenhof. He really uh, is. <laughs> yeah, because you know how this is going to end, don't you? So the Omzicht will now t- declare this on. His expenses they'll lose yeah. the receipt and three ministers will have to resign <laughs> i'm really waiting for this to happen but going back to the debate on wednesday yeah um yeah the first uh, remarkable thing that happened to us that dylan yesogus the leader of the vvd party said that her party might be prepared to form a coalition with pvv and bbb as a fully functioning coalition partner rather than uh, only providing gedoogsteun as she said right after the election right um, of course, the VVD party has been in power for the past 13 years. So all of a sudden, yeah, getting used to winning elections and getting the third largest party in, 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 in parliament forced them to be more... A little bit more humble. 
Nice. Humble. That yeah. was the word. Yeah. I was. Yeah. Uh, I I kept thinking about hum- humiliated, but that wasn't the word. It's humble. Um, <laughs> but it, it was humiliating it, it, for them as well. <laughs> it was very humiliating <laughs> for them. It forced them to be a, uh, to take a more humble approach. And uh, Dylan Yesuke said, "Yeah, I'm not going to um, step into a coalition, but I am willing to support a uh, right wing coalition." That was also important. Only a right wing coalition. Yeah, but and she said she she. Um, she didn't want to be in a minority cabinet herself, but she's quite happy for other parties to form a minority yeah. cabinet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Omtzigt was also irritated by this because he envisioned this exact role for him for yeah. a potential partner. And of course, you can't have uh, uh, an endless amount of, of, of parties that only support coalitions. You actually need parties that take part in coalitions. So that was uh, annoying for Omtzigt. But she said, yeah, now that Omtzigt has uh, stepped away, I'm willing to become a fully uh, uh, a, a full coalition partner uh, in an extra parliamentary uh, cabinet. And yeah. that's also something we should mention briefly. We don't know what an extra parliamentary cabinet is. Nobody seems to, everyone seems to want one, but nobody can explain what it actually is. It's, sort of a, it's like a pick and mix cabinet, isn't it? It seems yeah. to be. It's make up as you go along. You can have some, you can have a mix. You could, you could have potentially a cabinet that was only non-partisan ministers, people drawn from expertise, or you can have like a, a, a standard cabinet, which is all politicians, people from the political parties, or you can have kind of um, a combination, which seems to be what they're looking at. So you have some ministers from the parties but some ministers who are from outside of politics or there may be some uh, one or two ministers from the parties that aren't in the coalition uh, as you had uh, during the coronavirus remember when uh, um, the the health minister was replaced by by um, by somebody from the labor party whose name we both cannot remember right now. (laughs) (laughs) It was Martin Uh, van Rijn. Martin van Rijn. Van Rijn, yes. And another um, important aspect is that it would involve a looser alliance between the parties and there wouldn't be a detailed program with hard agreements. Sounds like very loose sand, in my opinion, and a very, mm. very omzichtsian, right? He, uh, he wants everything. He doesn't want to commit fully to any to anything, but yeah, he wants it all. This is uh, this is a bit. Uh, he wants it to be as, as technical and obscure and uh, as yeah. uh, as archaic as possible, really. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. Jessica's move was made, as she said, to break the impasse, and it was also an invitation for Omtzigt to. Uh, yeah, uh, 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 come back to negotiation table a bit. So uh, yeah, if I make concessions, perhaps you should make one as well. Oh yeah, we should. I think we should mention that the last time we had a uh, uh, extra parliamentary cabinet. There's a bit of a discussion here, right? It was the last time in 1926 yeah. or 1939? The one in 1926 lasted three years. The one in 1939, two days. Slightly uh, less successful <laughs> that one, yeah. So. <laughs> that was, uh, and that had nothing to do with Nazi invasions or anything. It was just a failed political experiments. Yeah, yeah, the Nazi invasion came subsequently. Yeah, yeah and um, I think uh, who said this, I think it was uh, Henry Bontebal of the CDA. He said, are these really times for political experiments, right? We don't know how an extra parliamentary or extraterrestrial or an extra <laughs> galactical uh, uh, cabinet would look like. Yeah. Uh, we have a... We have a way of doing things. Why should we, um, yeah, basically experiment with the ways of how the Netherlands is governed in these sort of times of crises, right? We have a a war on our doorstep. We are in a uh, economic crisis is coming ahead of us. Uh, we have, yeah, a climate uh, uh, um, uh, crisis as well. 
yeah, I think uh, Baltimore has a has a bit of a point here. I tell you, at this stage, uh, I, I, I would uh, actually be right up for an extraterrestrial cabinet. I think uh, asking <laughs> aliens to invade might be the only way that we actually get a government in before before the end of the year. Or we should call Elon Musk to uh, try to arrange. <laughs> no, I don't think we should call I, Elon I, Musk. No. I have I have a number of politicians we should uh, we should send to Mars. Mm. No, there's there's one who's already already on his way there, I think, uh, or a couple from the FAD benches. Um, and at the end of the debate, um, the Wilders uh, had to nominate uh, the next state informateur because uh, um, Ronald Plestek stepped down. Uh, so who did he choose? It was another Labour man. Yes, another yeah. member of the Labour Party. That's uh, I, I never knew that Wilders was such a fan of uh, of, uh, of the Labour Party. Mm. Um, he nominated Kim Putters uh, to oversee the next round of efforts to form a new government. Who is Kim Putters? He is the chair of the Social Economic Raad, the Social Economic Council. That is, um, yeah, a very obscure institute, but very very influential. I think it often a, appears a, on news here. He's quite he's, he's quite mediagenic, isn't he? He's often yeah. there explaining things like uh, he's quite steeped in issues like inequality and um, yeah uh, so, like this all the link between economics and health and that kind of thing Yes, but it was also in his former role as the chair of the Social Cultural Plan Bureau, the exactly, so- yeah. Social Cultural Planning Agency. Yeah, these are the types of institutions you often hear about, but yeah, you actually don't really know what they're doing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it is a think tank. It is a parliamentary and governmental advisory board, and they are a key player in what we call the Polder model. So they uh, bring together social partners um the government, um, uh, entrepreneurs, um, yeah, you name yeah. it. it. It's uh, a kind of institution, really, that uh, you know, that in the Kierwilders in other times uh, would be just uh, screaming at to be abolished because it's a waste yeah. of public money, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you look, I mean, he, back he has to like a, I think Aaron Nulbach pointed out this week that he has a rainbow flag in his Twitter bio. So oh, like really? It, <laughs> it, it, it represents so many things that Kierwilders, uh, you know, ordinarily would be uh, steadfastly against. It's quite and I would advise you to uh, to search for Kim Putter's tweets with the words uh, Wilders and PVV. That would uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, that uh, that's uh, that's uh, enjoyable. Uh, yeah. I can tell you. Um, but Putter's has been given the task uh, by Parliament to look for a fruitful political alliance, which does justice to the results of the election. He has been given four weeks to come up with a possible way forward. And who is he being? Who is he going to meet? Uh, Today or tomorrow? He's going to meet all of the party leaders, isn't he? They're basically starting again. They're, they're resetting the clock, yeah. aren't they? He's going to meet all... The, he's not just going to meet the four. There's some debate during the debate about whether he should just meet the four party leaders who are trying to put together this right-wing combination in some form, or he should he should meet absolutely everybody. And they've said, Wilders decided, actually, and I thought this was quite curious, Wilders said they should meet all the party leaders mm. and take soundings and basically do the job of Fekena. Um, and he's the, going the, to the, meet the election with... Scout. Uh, yeah. And he's going to meet with Herman Schenk Willink. Yes. So it's only a time. What, what did you say? The the, yeah, the, 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 the the hands on the Johann Remke's clock have just moved closer <laughs> to midnight. Yeah. Exactly. While The Hague is consumed with talk about how on earth we put together the next government, there's speculation that Mark Rutte could be moving on sooner than expected. During a press briefing on Tuesday, Juliana Smith, the United States permanent representative to NATO, said the members of the military alliance were keen to choose a successor to Jens Stoltenberg as Secretary General in the first quarter of the year. In other words, before April the 1st. 
which of course is an anniversary mm. for Mark Ritter, April the 1st, isn't it? Oh, yeah, of course. It's anniversary yeah. of that famous debate when uh, Sikhi Kark was going to do him in and then decided not to. Ritter is going to have, perhaps on April 1st, is going to get a Funksy Elders. Yeah, Funksy Elders, yeah. He did, he'll say, he's hiding on the wegen. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he's known to be one of the front runners for the post um, of uh, NATO Secretary General, and Smith confirmed that Grutter had expressed an interest, even though there's no formal application process. NATO is keen to wrap up the nomination. Has, I have never seen anyone who's been showing interest <laughs> so much in anything that Mark Rutte did in the past months for yeah. the NATO job. No. No. Um, and uh, yeah, NATO is keen to wrap up the nomination process well ahead of the European elections in June, where far-right parties that want to scale down NATO's support for Ukraine, such as the PFF, are expected to score well. Mm-hmm. And of course, the US presidential election is coming up, and one of the candidates there is not a big fan of NATO membership or indeed supporting Ukraine. So NATO don't want the new boss walking straight into a potential Trump-set firestorm. Stoltenberg is due to finish his term in October, but if Rutte is picked as his successor, he could leave The Hague earlier to prepare for the job and also just uh, yeah, not, not uh, um, look like he's got a conflict of interests. And in that case, it will fall to the Fefe Day party to choose his successor, assuming the coalition talks are still going on, which I think is a pretty safe assumption. So, yeah, what happens in Paul? Is, is this unprecedented? Have we ever actually changed prime ministers during a caretaker government? I think the only time that happened was uh, May si- May tenth, nineteen forty, or something. Yeah. Uh, when uh, yeah, well, that, that wasn't quite a caretaker government, was it? That was a different no, type of right. uh, yeah, they, change they, of administration. Yeah. They didn't care at all. Um, you no, know, this is completely unprecedented. I've never heard of anything happening like this. Um, that would. I think spark Margaret's interest very much because he likes to break all the records and to make uh, to write <laughs> parliamentary history. So uh, that would only be a, a a more reason to accept the NATO job. Um, but yeah, it is true because yeah, some people were wondering: is the first vice prime minister then taking over the job as prime minister? The the first vice prime minister is. Rob Jetta, I believe. I think it is D66. Yeah. Uh, but no, that's not the case. It's technically just a minister that is resigning and is going to need a replacement. And the coalition agreement always says that um, uh, uh, the, the the political parties themselves uh, choose a successor then for the minister for the for the minister job. So uh, yeah, yeah, that's also that also applies to to the prime ministership technically. So they can bring in literally anybody. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, they can bring in Teeny Cox. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, an extra, <laughs> an extra. No, is, is there a pun? Can I make a pun here? I think no, you can. I don't know. Yeah, uh, it'll be a hard decision. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they can they can select everyone, of course. But yeah, uh, yeah we, it's it's in the line of expectation that it's going to be a favorite day member. Yeah, it'll be a favorite day member. Perhaps Paul Slettenhauer, the kind of tea cocks <laughs> go for Slettenhauer, surely. <laughs> And uh, Rutte has uh, has had a busy week because he's also been to Israel this week, right? Yes, uh, it probably hasn't escaped everyone's attention that uh, Rutte has been doing a lot of uh, world statesmaning lately, yeah. uh, especially in conflict zones. And uh, luckily for him, there's no shortage of those at present. On Monday, he visited Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the Palestinian leader Mohammed Shteir. 
Uh, Rutter is one of the few world leaders who's on good terms with both sides uh, in the Gaza conflict, and he used the trip to plead for them to secure an immediate pause in the fighting uh, that leads to a permanent cessation of this terrible conflict, which uh, was uh, Rutter basically using every form of words he could uh, that didn't include the word ceasefire. <laughs> the Netherlands is one of the European nations that has so far abstained in the UN on motions calling for a ceasefire, but Rutter did call on Netanyahu not to launch a major operation in the border settlement of Rafa on the Egyptian border where the Palestinian refugees have been slowly driven by the Israeli offensive. Uh, Rutter said that would have catastrophic humanitarian consequences and Israel should allow aid to uh, get into the region. But the Dutch government is contesting a court ruling that it should stop supplying Israel with parts for uh, F-35 fighter jets. Yes, on Monday the Court of Appeal in The Hague uh, said F-35 components should not be exported to Israel because there was a clear risk, in the court's words, that they were being used to violate international law. The parts belong to the United States, but they're stored at Wunsdrecht military airbase, uh, which means the Dutch government have to sign off any export uh, um, of them. And uh, they were requested by Israel after the, its offensive in Gaza began in October. The case was brought by campaign groups Oxfam Nobib, Pax Nederland and the Rights Forum. Lawyer Lisbeth Sechfeld said she was happy and relieved by the outcome, but later on Monday the Foreign Affairs Ministry confirmed it would appeal against the ruling, which gives the Dutch government a seven-day ultimatum to stop exporting the parts. The Netherlands must remain a reliable partner, said Aid Minister Jeffrey von Leeuwen, and Israel needs the F-35 aircraft to defend itself against threats emanating from the region separate from Gaza, with obviously a reference to the attacks on shipping by the Houthis, and uh, yeah, Israel starting to um, seemingly prepare for um, some kind of uh, uh, offensive in Lebanon as well against Hezbollah. However, NSA reported that the Netherlands has blocked military exports to Israel by refusing to issue a permit on 29 occasions between 2004 and 2020. So there is a precedent for it. It's not the case the Netherlands always uh, lets um, uh, parts be exported to Israel. Mm-hmm. And there has also been threats to the uh, Israeli embassy in, uh, in The Hague. Yes, uh, that's what City Mayor Jan von Zanen said last Friday, though he wouldn't go into the details of what the threat was. All he said was uh, it was uh, a threat that needed to be taken extremely seriously, and he's ordered security be, to be stepped up outside the embassy on Johan de Witlan, which is a big dual carriageway sort of running past the World Conference Centre, and uh, one side of it's now being completely oh. closed off, and <clears throat> they've put up barriers, and traffic's reduced to one lane, and there are police directing cars going past. I've driven through it a couple of times in the last few days. And <clears throat> on Tuesday, the mayor issued an emergency order that allowed the police to stop and search people approaching the embassy and deny them access if necessary. On Tuesday evening, the bomb squad were called to the Israeli ambassador's residence on Alexander Kokolvech after a suspicious package was left on the doorstep. Police later announced it was a false alarm. The postman had delivered a parcel that was meant for the neighbours to the wrong house. <laughs> And it, <laughs> was it was it a Hema dildo uh, by any chance? Or maybe it was a speaker um, uh. broadcasting <laughs> sex noises, which is why they had to get the bomb squad in. Suspicious packets from Femke Halsema. <laughs> On Wednesday, the Eerste Kamer voted against the government plan to phase out the arrangement that allows solar panel users to deduct the power they feed back into the electricity grid from their power bills. 
The so-called salderingsregeling was originally introduced to encourage consumers to install solar panels on their roofs and proved very successful because currently one in three households are equipped with solar panels. Do you have solar panels, Gordon? I don't have solar panels on my roof. No, I'm in a, in a, I'm in a FEFEA building and the FEFEA ah. haven't got around to, um, yeah, to organizing it. Uh, so they, they ran out of tidy biscuits uh, for yeah, the meetings so. yeah. uh, they need before they can decide to, to put solar panels on the roofs. Yeah. Um, 2.6 million panels are on the Dutch roof uh, panels. Um, so, um, yeah, an enormous quantity. And it all has a bit of a downside because energy firms have been wrestling with the problems of what to do with the large volume of electricity solar panels are feeding back into the system on the very rare sunny days we have in this country. Mm. Um and I, I just I also read somewhere that 75% of all the solar panels are simply just turned off on sunny days because you know they nobody uses that yeah people generate too much power yeah, yeah yeah exactly energy minister Robieta has listened to the energy firms and last year announced plans to scrap the buyback scheme and was uh, totally not motivated by the fact that his ministry is losing tens of millions of euros in uh, in tax income of course not yeah that has nothing to do with no. that no no um, no bearing at all. Um, in addition, Yetta feels that solar panels are now uh, yeah, cheap enough to be a good investment without government support and proposed paying households a fee for the electricity they feed into the grid. So it would no longer be uh, yeah, financially interesting to, uh, to, to do this. And the plan was approved by the Tweede Kamer last February. Yeah. So which parties in the upper house uh, opposed the bill? BBB voted against uh, the bill because they say the government should first do something about the increasingly limited capacity of the Dutch power grid. And GroenLinks PvdA feels that the incentive to install solar panels should also apply for low-income households. And uh, they just um, the uh, solar panels are just becoming cheap enough for them to uh, to to buy and to put on their on their roof t- mm. uh, 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 rooftops. Uh, they called it crazy to phase out the scheme now. Uh, and these are the two largest parties, so by then it was uh, yeah, already a, lo- uh, a, a done deal, I, I suppose. Uh, but uh, yeah, they were joined by PVV, Ja21 uh, and the Socialist Party. Yeah, and at the same time, gas consumption in the Netherlands is, uh, is going down. Yeah, by 5% last year. That's uh, a continuation of the downward trend in recent years. Households uh, used 11% less gas in 2023, uh, while hospitals, restaurants, uh, shops and those sort of places consumed around 7% less. Even though uh, average temperatures in 2023 were roughly the same as the previous year, so still a decline in gas usage. Um, the drop was smaller than the 25% uh, cut in 2022. Uh, 2022. Um, yeah, what happened in 2022? Yeah, I something can't happened, remember. didn't it? So something hmm. happened that uh, made uh, ga- using gas uh, a lot less uh, appealing. Um, yes, Russia's uh, renewed offensive against Ukraine triggered a spike in gas market prices. And this was all uh, not very helped by the fact that the Netherlands was uh, right in the middle of uh, yeah, closing the Groninger gas fields. Um, the gas extraction there has caused earthquakes in uh, the Groninger province. Um, and the Netherlands is still importing 9% of its gas uh, from Russia, which is a shocking amount, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, but it is down from 24% in 2021. Yeah, but still, 9% is still uh, yeah, quite uh, quite a lot. The United States is now the biggest source of Dutch gas, uh, which accounts to uh, for one third of all imports, while Norway is providing 30%. 
Yeah. <clears throat> and the proportion we get we get from Norway has actually come down. So we actually get it from mm. 2021 as well. We used to get we used to get nearly nearly half our gas from Norway. They are angry at us for uh, scrapping the um, Groninger Norway ferry line. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. It used to come a... by ferry. Now it's uh, yeah. 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 We need to build a pipeline. We do our best to shed more light than heat on the life and politics of the Netherlands on this podcast. And if you appreciate our efforts and want to spread a bit of low-cost sunshine, there's no better way than to become a Patreon sponsor. Making these podcasts does take up a lot of our time, and although we do it mainly for the sheer love of it, we are very grateful for the generosity of those listeners who can spare us a couple of euros or dollars every month to help us to help you make sense of it all, sort of. To be honest, we don't have to make all these uh, uh, extremely long episodes every week. Uh, this is no. our own fault. But it's also <laughs> it a bit of, it's also the fault of uh, of Ronald Plasterk and Peter Olmser because they keep uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the Peter Olmser keeps keeps on uh, yeah borrowing uh, Ronald Plasterk's car, and we feel obliged <laughs> yeah. to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. And we, we also need to start a crowdfunder to, to, to get that uh, the, the 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 Hofstadt version of Grand Theft Auto made because I want to play it. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, all our patrons, all our patrons get a shout out on air and the chance to ask us your questions, and of course you get access to all our bonus content and an extra vote in the wholly transparent Opeth of the Year awards. Um, did we ever hear back from the winner of the yeah. Morgan Coaster? Oh, okay, he was, it was, uh, it was uh, oh, what was his name again? He was very, uh, very happy with this mug, and uh, he liked it very much. So uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm glad that he, uh, he, he, he liked it, even though it was uh, shockingly uh, <laughs> ugly and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was shockingly low production. Values, but uh, yeah, exactly. I've, I've got the Zeisler Seimer coaster here, and uh, yeah. I have to say, that, I one, that one is a real collector's item. I that is a real collector's yeah. item. I've, I like it very much. I got it, uh, yeah, for my morning coffee. So that's what you can win if uh, if you increase your chances of winning that kind of uh, um, uh, merchandise uh, by becoming a, pay, a, a patron. There are four tiers of membership, so you can decide how much you want or are able to donate. Uh, but Krachtergordel patrons, that's the top tier, do get three votes in the Opf Awards. Yeah. So vote early, vote often, and give generously is the um, takeaway here. And if you would like to become a patron of the podcast, log on to www.patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl. Good news on the economy this week, because the statistics agency, CBS, confirmed that the Netherlands is no longer in recession. GDP Ooh. grew by 0.3% in the last quarter of 2023, ending which, nine which, months of decline. Which country in our vicinity just uh, slipped just, into a re- just went into recession yeah yeah mm. I, I heard about that as well yeah mm. it's, a, it's a place that's uh, just across the sea I think yeah uh, yeah yeah. I can't believe I can't imagine this has got anything to do with the fact that uh, one country is in the European Union and the other one isn't who knows who knows uh, the increase in Dutch GDP was powered almost entirely by consumer spending, which was up by 1.8%, and most of that money went on services. Trips to the cinema, theatre, concerts and holidays uh, all uh, saw uh, much more expenditure than in uh, 2022, uh, partly because, of course, we just, we'd just uh, come out of uh, com- completely out of lockdown, so there were no restrictions on travel, and people had money saved up that they wanted to splash out. Um, spending on goods, on the other hand, declined by 1.2% because everyone was fed up with buying stuff on uh, you know, the, 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 on the internet <laughs> they didn't they never, they never actually used. 
I still have a waffle iron in my in my in my uh, cupboards, which I, ne- which I never used. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So although the, the country was in recession for most of the year, uh, more, more people are working. They're earning more because wages have risen strongly in the last year, and inflation is on the way down. So it turns out that despite all the warnings about wage price spirals, paying people more money is actually good for the economy. In a I, startling I like revelation. Money. Yes. Please donate to uh, patreoncom slash nl Yes. Um, so it's all good news. Um, we can look forward to a booming 2024. There are no problems whatsoever, no bears on the horizon. Mm, not exactly, because uh, the, the experts are warning that although the recession was shallow, it was long, and the shockwaves of the high energy prices in 2022 are still working through and things like prices of food in the shops, um, and they're particularly being felt, of course, by the poorest households who are still uh, trying to recover their finances from uh, the, the very big increase in their expenditure of uh, the previous year. The business community as well says the Netherlands is becoming an increasingly unattractive place to operate in and one in five company bosses is thinking of leaving. 82% -hmm. of business owners say the unstable political climate is a problem and 60% believe last year's election will not solve the problem and I don't think you need a crystal ball to to, to come to that conclusion. CEOs also complained about red tape, staff shortages and the tax burden and uh, one in four said they weren't planning to invest at all this year. To be honest, uh, they always make these kind of complaints when there is a formation uh, going on. So that yep. uh, might have something to do with their uh, timing. Yeah, they always um, say taxes are terrible. We're going to leave the country if they don't cut taxes. And then yeah. they, they never seem they to, stay. they never actually make good on their promise. So talking of staff shortages, uh, there was also some news about the jobs market this week. Yeah, it's still very tight, is the news. Uh, according to the CBS again, unemployment's fallen to 360,000 at the end of last year, which is 3.6% of the working population. Almost three quarters of 16 to 75-year-olds have some kind of work. Uh, we were mentioning last week, I think, that uh, lots of people um, are working beyond retirement for a bit of extra yeah. money or because uh, they, they just fancy keeping their hand in or they're offered a bit or again, sometimes their employers just can't find new staff, so they just sort of ask people to keep coming in on a kind of uh, freelance basis. Um, and there are still more vacancies than people to fill them. And yet uh, the four parties negotiating the next government uh, all say we should make the situation even worse by cutting labour migration. There's a group of around half a million part-time workers who would like to take on more hours. And Jeroen Thiel, chief executive of staffing agency Randstad, said uh, the unused labour potential was part of the solution, but it was not enough on its own to meet the challenges. And uh, Dutch banks had a uh, bonanza year in 2023. Yes, ABN AMRO was the last of the four major banks to announce its figures. And like the others, uh, they had a bumpy year. Net profits rose to 2.7 billion euros, which was up from 1.9 billion in 2022. Rabobank did even better. They booked profits of 4.37 billion, which mm-hmm. is the highest in the bank's 125-year history. And ING made a net profit of 7.3 billion last year, also a record. And those profits are driven by the uh, much higher interest rates last year, so the banks were able to charge people much more money for to borrow. And the European Central Bank raised its base rate to 4%. Um, Abia Namro is going to celebrate by splashing out on, uh, well, itself, actually. It's going to be <laughs> buying its own shares because the Dutch state still owns a minority stake in the bank, which had to be bailed out in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, so Abia Namro is now launching a 500 million euro share buyback scheme, which will also raise 200 million for the uh, for the public purse as well. But the banks have been uh, criticized for not passing on these profits to savers. 
Yes, uh, Ian Kane and Rabobank currently offer rates of less than 2% on their basic savings accounts, and the competition regulator, ACM, has said there's not enough choice available to consumers. So yeah. Yeah, they, they, they charge uh, something above the ECB's base rate of 4%, but uh, if you've got money in, the, in savings, you're getting less than half of that. Rabobank rejected the criticism. They say other fixed rate savings products are available that offer 2.4%. But Dutch savers currently have um, hold about 10 billion in savings in other European countries where they can get better interest rates. And mm-hmm. that amount has doubled in the last two years. So they're voting with their feet or with their wallets rather. Extremely bad news for parents in Amsterdam. The Dutch product safety body NVWA has told cargo bike maker Babu to stop selling all its bicycle-based products. And they have a lot of them, I saw yeah, on their um, website. They don't really sell much else, so uh, yeah, no, it's a real problem no. for them. Yeah. Yes. The NVWA announced on Wednesday it has opened its own investigation last year after they were alerted to frames that broke while children were being transported. The safety boards feels uh, Babu failed to respond to the investigation as it should have done. The announcement came after RCL News reported a faulty bakfietsen and had spoken to a mother from Utrecht whose children were injured after the front-mounted crate snapped off her bike while cycling on a busy road. Yikes. RTL also spoke to five Babu employees who acknowledged several bikes uh, with broken frames had been brought into their repair shop in Amersfoort. Um, I wonder if uh, if a, a certain polar bear was involved in this. Maybe the bikes are corroded uh, by um, <laughs> yeah after cycling past the polar bear. <laughs> yes, all these uh, yeah assets, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's uh, the company is now ordered to uh, halt all sales and some uh, thirty five hundred bikes of models known to be detective defective uh, have to be recalled. Yeah, uh, Babu so, also um, responsible for trying to put together the uh, the, the the coalition because th- th- that would explain <laughs> a lot. Like, yeah. yeah, the the Peter Omzicht frame broke off uh, right <laughs> exactly. when uh, right when Plastek yeah. was uh, making a turn. Yeah, um, Plastek was making a hard turn to the right, and uh, it, it just <laughs> fell apart. <laughs> the lesson here is avoid your buck feeds, Just use chauffeured cars. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very wise. And finally to sport. Finally, I'm excited for sport. Yeah, we haven't had any cricket news for a while, no. uh, so uh, let's put that straight. The, the Dutch men's team are playing their first matches uh, since their famous ICC World Cup campaign of last autumn, where they won plenty of admirers, but ultimately did uh, finish bottom of the table. On Sunday, they arrived in Kathmandu to start a tri-series with Nepal and Namibia, which marks the start mm. of the road to the next World Cup, hopefully in 2027. The three teams are all in World Cricket League 2, which sounds even worse than a Nations League. And uh, the top four out of eight will go through to the qualifying tournament in 2026. The Dutch are also playing in the T20 World Cup in June. That's the shortest form of international cricket, where they play 20 overs each and last about an hour and a half. They qualified as one of the top eight nations in 2022, uh, when, of course, they beat South Africa. Uh, They also beat South Africa in the World Cup last year. This time, they're drawn in Group D with Nepal, there they are again, South Africa, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. And the tournament is being held jointly by the USA and the West Indies. So they'll mm-hmm. be playing, uh, I think they're playing uh, South Africa in New York, which will be uh, quite a spectacular setting for that uh, that match. Yeah. I- imagine when you are a young Dutch cricket player uh, jabbing your wicket for the first time in, yeah. uh, in, a, in a grassy field. And then you could never imagine that you were going to play uh, cricket in Kathmandu of all places <laughs> exactly, or in New York yeah. right it's a yeah. spectacular they development 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, very important question: Which players are in the squad? Is uh, is is our favorite player in the squad as well? No, I'm afraid he's not actually. No, he's. Mm. Um, yeah, we'll come to that. Uh, uh, there are some new players being drafted in: uh, fast bowler Kevin Kyle and um, Hermes Davieskidam's uh, all rounder Oliver Elenbass. Uh, so a natural uh, Dutch domestic cricketer, uh, not yeah. an imported uh, Australian or South African <laughs> or New Zealander. Not that there's anything wrong with those, but uh, yeah, it's good to see Dutch. Uh, um, uh, so, so some, some nursery players coming through left arm fast bowler Fred Klassen will play his first competitive match for 8 months after he's recovered from a stress fracture and Australian born veteran Tim van der Huchten oh, so I guess in Australia he's called uh, something else um, <laughs> he's, been, <laughs> he's been included in the T20i world squad However, some familiar names from the Autumn World Cup are missing because of club commitments. Uh, Logan van Beek, sadly, is um, mm. busy uh, with, with Wellington, so he won't be playing. And Colin Ackerman as well is, um, it is, it has not been released from his contract by Durham. Uh, Paul van Meekeren as well, um, who's uh, one of the stars of the World Cup campaign, has withdrawn for personal reasons. So van Beek and Ackerman f- uh, find their Waterloo in Wellington. Yes. Meanwhile, in football, things uh, go from bad to worse for Vitesse Arnhem. Yeah, they seem to be cursed, uh, Vitesse. Um, yeah. uh, the the Eredivisie's bottom side are in trouble on and off the pitch. Uh, a start on the pitch where they were 2-1 up to Heracles, um, uh, but then uh, in, in the Eredivisie looking uh, like they might manage to win their first time for the first time in six matches. But then their captain, uh, Nicolai Isima-Mirin, was sent off more uh, just before half-time. And Gis Gordon, Horncamp. Gordon, Gordon, Gordon. Yeah. Yeah. When we mentioned Tiny Cox uh, earlier in the podcast, <laughs> I was immediately thinking of one... Of the worst Dutch names ever, <laughs> and all of a sudden he is here in the script. Yep. What's his name? Yep, uh, it was uh, Heracles came back uh, from came from behind uh, against uh, Vitesse Arnhem uh, with a double thrust by Jiz Hornkamp. <laughs> so who scored two goals in the second half? Um, and they had enough. to they had to call in the explosion service uh, after this. Um. <laughs> They're going to erect yeah. a, 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 a statue for him. They I will think. erect a statue to Jizz, yeah. yeah. And uh, he will. Uh, I think probably the the, the, the Tom Jones uh, terrorist group uh, will, <laughs> yeah, will, will, will be leaving um, speakers in uh, discreet places, um, the Harakas uh, dressing room, ahead of their next game. Uh, so yeah, so, so Fidesa still bottom of the Eredivisie, um, still without a win since December. And then this week, the Canfe Bay is plot to take over bid by uh, an organisation called the Common Group, which is a company based in the United States. The Footballers Association's licensing no, no. The Football Association's licensing committee said there were too many doubts about the Common Group's finances. Um, sort of minor details like who actually are the investors. Coley Parry, who owns the Common Group, uh, gave a press conference in Arnhem where he said he was very disappointed and outlined a plan B in which his company will take a 24.9% stake in the club. He promised not to bleed Vitesse dry, which uh, sounds about as plausible as the Pefefe's <laughs> promise to uphold the constitution. <laughs> Parry outlined how deep Vitesse's problems are at the moment. Um, the club was put up for sale by its previous owner, Valeri Oif, um, who suddenly decided in March 2022 um, to uh, sell the club, possibly because he's a Russian national. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that might have something to do with it um, a month after the invasion of Ukraine. But because he's been unable to find a buyer, Fisetta still formally remains in Russian hands, and that means uh, has had all kinds of other awkward uh, uh, side effects, like uh, the fact the club has been unable to sign off its annual accounts for the last couple of years. Oh, wow. Yeah, Fidesa were also fined €100,000 because they didn't tell the Canfe Bay that they'd ended their relationship with their bank. 
So yeah, they're they're, they're in they're, they're they're in the mire basically. And uh, Parry says his company will appeal against the licensing committee's decision, but in the meantime, he's pleaded with the community to do their bit to keep Vitessa afloat. I think uh, he's only one step away from hiring Raisa Blomenstein to uh, be his uh, <laughs> uh, his commercial affairs director. Please donate, uh, director. Yeah, I, I and they Vitessa. Yeah, they are at the bottom of of the uh, in the in the in the Eredivisie league, of course. But they have this enormous. Uh, stadium, of course, yeah. and that's also maintaining that and being able to play there also costs a lot it must of cost money. A lot, a lot of money, yeah. Obviously, I mean, they have they other things there as well. The football matches, they have a lot of concerts there, but uh, yeah, it is uh, it is a very big, very very expensive asset, definitely. Yeah, but I think I read somewhere that the the arrangement they make made when this uh, stadium was built, there were also some money troubles. So it was actually uh, in the ownership of someone else, and they pay yeah basically rent to play there. But yeah, they can't they can't play, pay the rent anymore no um, and they so, said, they've uh, said they've had a business plan and a, a cuts package uh, to try and uh, balance their books but it's all predicated on staying in the Eredivisie and uh, the way things yeah. are going at the moment they're six points clear uh, six points behind the safety line um, with about two thirds of the season gone so that's not looking like a very um, uh, solid business plan either so uh, we have a Russian club in the uh, Eredivisie, uh, on paper at least, but uh, there's also something else going on in Russia with Dutch players, right? Yeah, um, you're talking about uh, Quincy Promes, I think, Yes. Um, uh, who is going to be staying in Russia for uh, as long as he can possibly get away with it, I think. Because he's exiled. He's effectively exiled now. Yes, yeah. so Promes uh, was, uh, well, he, he there was a court appearance um, or a court hearing in Amsterdam last week um, uh, where Promes was uh, accused of uh, playing a part in smuggling 1,350 1, kilos of cocaine through Antwerp that was hidden in a consignment of Brazil salt um, but uh, the promise of course wasn't in court because he now these days he lives and uh, plays and works in, in Russia he plays as part at Moscow he was uh, the subject of a very very hasty transfer from Ajax um, yeah. in uh, February 2021 after he was arrested uh, for a different offence stabbing his nephew at a family party uh, he's already been sentenced to uh, one and a half years in prison for that offence. Um, the, uh, the the cocaine smuggling came up in court last week and uh, the court decided um, that uh, the, the he was guilty of the offence and uh, um, gave him uh, in, uh, handed down a six-year jail term uh, for that, partly because Quincy Promes, as an international footballer, was a role model for young people, so the fact he was involved in drug smuggling was um, yeah. Yeah, was extra, extra bad, basically. Um, so... But uh, Promise these days uh, is rumoured to be trying to get a Russian passport, at which point it will be beyond the reach of Dutch justice uh, because Russia doesn't extradite its own citizens. Um, mm-hmm. But although he's managed to stay out of jail so far, um, the authorities are going after his assets. Uh, prosecutors have petitioned to seize all the nine properties that he owns in Amsterdam, Almere, Utrecht, where he actually uh, still has a house, and Abkauda which was the and well which is where the, the party happened that he was uh, uh, where he was arrested ah. for the stabbing so i don't know if he owns the house where the stabbing happened i don't know anyway the, i think the, he should be allowed to 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 keep his house in almere that seems like a yeah uh, that, that seems a, like a, a, a good the, punishment exactly like an exas- exacerbated punishment yeah yeah in fact he should be, he should he, be ordered he, to buy more houses in almere <laughs> he should be yeah. ordered to buy all of Almere. Yeah, anyway, but, his property uh, yeah. portfolio has got an estimated value of 10 million euros. So that's uh, <laughs> quite a lot to, uh, to to have confiscated. 
Yeah, but 1,350 kilos of cocaine, he's, he, he obviously likes tons of snow, so then Russia is the very yes. logical place to go, exactly, of course. Yeah. 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 Um, the Champions League is uh, returning this week. Yep, I need Dutch players. Uh, well, one Dutch, Dutch teams, teams, PSV Eindhoven, they're, they're, uh-huh. they're hosting Borussia Dortmund on Tuesday, so a short, yeah, short, a short trip, yeah. a short drive yeah. to Borussia. Yeah, I think probably they're probably closer than uh, if, they, if they travel to, to Groningen or Leerwaarde. Yeah. Um, yeah, good, that's yeah. the first leg of their last 16 tie Luke de Jong is a top scorer in the competition uh, so far this year by the way with uh, 7 cool. goals okay. uh, Peter Boss's side still have a 10 point lead in the Eredivisie after they came from 1-0 down to win 5-0 and 1-0 at Fulham second place Feyenoord won the Rotterdam derby against Sparta 2-1 sorry. and this weekend PSV play host to Heracles uh, and Jis Hornkamp while Feyenoord <laughs> are also at home to RKC Valveig <laughs> That's uh, all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by emails or podcast at dutchnews.nl. And if you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. You can also back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. And my thanks to Gordon Derek, and we'll be back next week. They, they had a picture of the Colosseum uh, on, on one side and, and, and the Kuip on the other side. And it was like, how many how many spectators did the Colosseum fit? And it is one and a half times as much as the Kuip. So not exactly a, a, a fair comparison, I have to say. Yeah. Um, yeah did, did they also superimpose like uh, empty beer cans and uh, spent <laughs> fireworks and uh, all that on, on the Colosseum? I didn't make it so far in the video, so I don't know. <laughs>